What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, did last week's rally signal a bottom? Why one of Wall Street's top strategists says the selling is not over. But what about a new plan? We get a new buyout this morning following a cratering in software valuations. Does that signal a buy? And then Chanos revealing this new short position, why he says coin isn't in Coinbase's future. We're going to start with the rally, though, that we've seen for the Nasdaq, gaining more than 8% last week, best week since November 2020. So should investors be buying that dip? Was that it? Tama Bravo sees some value in one software name, buying Anaplan for nearly $11 billion. No shortage of bearish arguments, though. A headline in the journal this morning reads, sorry, investors, you can't buy the dip anymore, arguing the Fed is now too big a risk. Key questions for investors, where's the next Anaplan? Is it safe to buy some beaten down tech? And was last week's bounce Real, John, fascinating dynamic, especially as some of these software names are getting a second look. True, true, Carl. Yeah, I still think it looks to me like it's risky to look for the next Anna plan, and here's why. Tomo Bravo is willing to pay around 11 times revenue for Anaplan. It's kind of a high-quality asset here. They think they can put it together with some other things and show uh, some, some real growth down the line. Uh, private equity up to this point has tended to pay around eight times revenue, right? So th- this is an unusual situation where PE was willing to pay more. It's also rather expensive. So what about all the other expensive stuff out there that might not be as high-quality and that P.E. might not be willing to pay 11 times revenue for, D, I think that's what you sort of have to consider as you look through, you know, how, what are the chances that these things have bottomed because of P.E.? I don't think that's why. I think you got to be prepared to hold on to something for a long time and really believe that it's high quality, even if you're buying here. If you if you have that long time horizon, but we know that private equity is so flush with cash, they've raised so much in a low interest rate environment that perhaps we're seeing another chapter here, guys. They're looking for these beaten down software enterprise names. Yes, John, everything you said is fair warning, um, but it's a different proposition here as well, right? You look at Starboard and Box, right? Box try, or Starboard tried to move Aaron Levy. They couldn't. He was able to create value on his own. But when you're getting into these software companies, you're dealing with a different kind of company, sometimes where the founder is still in place and has built a lot of goodwill with investors. So we'll be interesting to see if uh, more of this happens. And we actually have the perfect guest to talk about this. Um, so we're going to dive into it. Joining us now for more on software valuations, GGV Capital Managing Partner, Glenn Solomon. GGV has been making the argument already that there's a valuation floor in software, arguing if value fall too low, there would actually be buyouts exactly like we're seeing with Anaplan. Glenn, it's great to have you this morning. I guess the question, though, is will, if we see more, will private equity firms be successful? Is this an issue of companies 
you know, less not being well run and more, you know, markets valuing them on a more normal historical basis. Is there room for them to create value? First off, a lot of these companies are doing exceptionally well. Anaplan, no exception. The company's growing 30% plus year on year, uh, very strong margins. Uh, so an attractive asset. And now you have Toma Bravo coming in and uh, paying, yes, 11 times forward uh, for the asset, more like 14 times next 12 months, which is actually a huge premium to where the current uh, cloud index is trading, more like seven or eight times. So nearly double uh, what you're seeing the average SaaS multiple these days. So I actually think this is a harbinger of things to come. In fact, I've chatted with uh, some of my friends in the M&A space who tell me that this is the first of many deals that are coming. There's a lot of others that are being uh, uh, discussed at the moment. Uh, and you have both uh, private equity and uh, strategics looking at these assets and, and licking their chops. So if investors want to look for the next, say, Anaplan, another potential target, what should they be looking for? As John sort of laid out, there's a lot of different views towards valuations and where they should ultimately settle. You know, I think um, first off, you look for growth uh, and you're going to see growth across uh, many, many different uh, areas of software right now, whether it be security, uh, cloud infrastructure, uh, SMB tech. There's just growth almost wherever you look. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is margin structure. Uh, and a lot of these companies trade at very high margins that attracts P.E., uh, and the third thing, and, and public investors uh, have caught on to this, looking at retention rates. So gross retention uh, and net dollar retention are huge and important with respect to the lifetime value of software. Uh, and a lot of these companies are, are, are showing very high margin and also uh, excellent retention rates with net dollar retention rates in the you know, 115, 120, even 130 range. And that just means that dollars uh, gained today are going to be worth more in the future. And I think that's why private equity and strategics are excited about, about this asset class. Glenn, I wonder, um, is any part of their calculus uh, the idea that uh, there can be better cost control, better cost discipline? And if so, how are they going to do that in ways that the company couldn't do on its own? Yeah, I think for uh, the Toma Bravos and Vista uh, equity partners of the world, there is uh, part of the story is uh, cost containment and also consolidation. Oftentimes they'll buy assets. Uh, and then, at, at, as John mentioned earlier, they'll, they'll continue to add other assets uh, and, and grow a bigger company that way. But really, uh, the name of the game these days is not so much about um, cutting costs. It's about not investing as aggressively in the next leg of growth. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see massive layoffs at these businesses. In fact, in software, one of the challenges is right now, uh, there's just a labor shortage. And, uh, and no matter where you go around the world, and these companies are all sourcing labor uh, outside the U.S., it's just every market is getting more and more expensive uh, to hire people and retain them. And with stock prices down, uh, equity as a component of people's compensation is going lower. So I actually think you're going to see uh, expenses continue to stay uh, steady or even rise at the average software company because of that. But it doesn't really change the fundamental picture in my mind. Margins are super high, retention rates are high, and growth is high. That, that ultimately leads to 
great long-term value. Yeah, Glenn, I, I want to go back, though, to the buyer beware uh, portion of this, because you mentioned, I think, the cloud index is tra- tra- trading around seven or eight times. That's about what P.E., you know, on average has been paying. So th- there's no room for a premium there right now unless some of those fall further. And the higher quality ones that P.E. is going to want to buy out, arguably, are not going to fall as quickly. So, uh, so isn't there some danger that things do need to go lower before that valuation floor, right, that, that private equity would put in really kicks in across the board? Well, you know, now you have a data point in Anaplan that kind of flies in the face of that argument. Uh, and, and while Anaplan is a terrific company, there are many more like it, John. So, I, yes, I would agree that um, historically PE firms uh, have been anchored in that range that you mentioned. And maybe that's about where median, uh, the, the median software stock is trading today. But that means that they're, you know, half or above and, and there's a lot more quality out there in the form of higher growth, uh, great margins, great retention. And so, and, and, and many of these companies have really, really big markets they're going after as well. And I think the PE firms and importantly, the strategics recognize that. And so, uh, you know, while PE firms just buying for price um, are going to stick, I'm sure, to lower multiples. As I said, what I'm hearing from friends in the M&A space, there's more deals coming. And I'm sure those deals are not below the median price. So I think we'll see more above median the current median mm-hmm. suggesting that, you know, people see long-term value, the buyers see long-term value, both in PE and in the strategic category. Yeah. Glenn, if we, if we continue to see it, it'll make for a fascinating next few months to see who does get uh, bought up. Glenn Solomon, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Let's turn now to Coinbase, short seller Jim Chanos, unveiling a new bet against the crypto exchange, calling the platform a bubble stock that's being sold on a story during an interview on closing bell overtime on Friday. Take a listen. We think that as competition increases in crypto, and this is not a call on on crypto or Bitcoin prices or anything like that, uh, but we think as as competition increases amongst the exchanges, you're going to see fee compression. And uh, as it is, uh, uh, Coinbase will probably not be profitable this year with a, a $40 billion market cap. Chenos also saying Coinbase uh, is over-earning compared to its competition, shares down 30% for the year. And uh, on the heels of those comments, Bank of America initiating coverage on crypto bank Silvergate Capital this morning with a buy rating, a $200 target, calling the stock an alternative way to get exposure to digital assets, saying it's well-positioned for the expanded use of stable coins. So, of course, with all that crypto stuff, D, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Um, <laughs> Chanos makes a pretty decent argument that $40 billion is quite a market cap for this story. But if you believe that Coinbase is more than just a, a transaction yeah. play, that it's kind of the, the Google of, of crypto and digital commerce in the future, um, yeah. he could get burned. That's right. If you believe that they can build an NFT platform, if you believe they're going to have success with DAO tools, maybe. But I think that what Chanos pointed to is super important here. It actually goes back to 
I recall our interview a few weeks ago with Binance CEO CZ. He talked about those transaction fees. Yes, they're going to come down. He also talked about what he called a hidden fee. And that's the spread that many of these platforms make when they're buying and selling Bitcoin. You buy, you know, a fraction of a Bitcoin. You don't really know exactly what price you're getting it at or selling it at. It's up to the platform. So that is going to narrow, Carl, as the market becomes more efficient. And I think that's what Chanos was talking about, is that the crypto market, as it's maturing, is actually becoming more efficient, and there's less room for the Coinbases of the world to make that kind of spread. Yeah, you got uh, better price discovery on one hand, and uh, the, obviously the platforms will argue uh, fee diversification on the other hand. We're going to watch that closely, but fascinating comments from Chanos on Friday. Meantime, moments ago, the SEC released some new proposed rules on climate risk disclosures. Our Diana Olick has that. Hi, Diana. Hi, Carl. And they are meeting as we speak, getting ready for a vote. But in a statement, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler said this would provide investors with consistent, comparable and decision useful information for making their investment decisions and would provide consistent and clear reporting obligations for issuers. Now, companies would have to disclose their climate related risks and how those risks would impact the business strategy and outlook. That includes weather events, of course, and their governments of climate related risks and risk management processes. They'd have to disclose their own direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions. Those are known as scopes one and two. Some companies would have to disclose scope three, which are emissions from supply chain and climate and clients only if they are part of a broader goal like being net zero by 2050. And all of that is not including offsets. They'd also have to disclose their internal carbon price if they use one and information about how that price is set. Also information about climate related targets and goals and transition plans, if any. Now, there would be phase-in periods starting in fiscal year 2024. As of now, just 43% of the nation's largest public companies disclose scope one and two emissions data. So this would be a pretty big deal. Back to you guys. Yeah, well, uh, Diana, thanks so much for bringing that to us. And later this hour, Verizon CEO Hans Vassberg is with us. Tech Check is just getting started. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Disney employees planning a walkout tomorrow over the company's response to Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay bill. Disney meeting with staff today as pressure builds on CEO Bob Chapek. Our Julia Borston has all the latest. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. Well, ahead of that walkout scheduled for tomorrow, today at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, the company is hosting a virtual event to address that Don't Say Gay bill and how Disney has handled it. Now, this is part of Disney's regular Reimagine Tomorrow event series that addresses issues of inclusion and representation. Now, this invite, which we obtained from a source at Disney, saying that the conversation will address how does the Don't Say Gay bill and other pending legislation impact LGBTQ plus kids and families, and what will it take to rebuild trust with our employees and LGBTQ plus 
communities. Now, the event was moved up from tomorrow, so, quote, as many employees as possible can participate. That's referencing the protest walkout that is scheduled for tomorrow, starting in the morning. And this all comes after CEO Bob Tapek faced criticism and concern from senior leaders across the company's studios around its handling of the bill. And a range of those companies' leaders have hosted town halls and meetings to hear their employees' frustrations. There was also a group of Disney Imagineers that asked the company to reverse its plans to move their team to Florida. Now, amid that conflict, my colleague Alex Sherman reports on CNBC.com about the serious rift between Chapek and his predecessor, Bob Iger. So we'll learn more on what's next for Disney coming up from this meeting that is scheduled to start in just a couple hours. Guys? Yeah, Julia, thanks. And, and we, we got to recommend, of course, that Alex Sherman piece. I wanted to ask you, uh, this controversy over Chapek's handling of that Florida bill up against how he handled Scarlett Johansson and, you know, that blow up that certainly didn't make Disney look too good. It's like he's he's got some issues both on the high profile actor front and now on the rank and file front. When's the last time we saw a Disney CEO facing this level of uh, employee or, or worker criticism? Well, look, I have never seen this amount of, of employee criticism just in terms of the amount of incoming phone calls and texts I've been getting from people at the company that are expressing their concern to me as sources at the company. Um, but what I would say is the Scarlett Johansson issue was a very unusual one. And that Scarlett Johansson issue really spoke to the transition that the company was making from being about a theatrical release company to one that was really uh, prioritizing Disney Plus and the other streaming platforms. The at issue, of course, was how it handled that and whether it could have been more, it could have done more to uh, address the concerns and the payment that was going to go to its biggest stars. We did see a, a somewhat similar issue when HBO Max was was getting the first release movies from Warner Brothers. Now, what was interesting there is there was a blow up. Warner Brothers uh, and Warner Media ended up paying out the stars of those movies that were going to be going straight to HBO Max at the same time they were in theaters. That did not escalate to a lawsuit. So this is different. Um, what happened with Scarlett Johansson was different in that it escalated to the lawsuit. So I think that the conflict, especially when it came to that Scarlett Johansson issue, was similar to what other studios faced. But the fact that it went that far and it did become a legal issue does speak to the fact that Chapek does not necessarily have the same types of relationships with talent as maybe Bob Iger did. Um, that issue may have been resolved with Scarlett Johansson, but what's happening right now is very different. It is really a cultural issue and one that many employees of the company seem to be very concerned about. Indeed. Well, sometimes leaders can uh, emphasize the strategic goals, but, but perhaps not see the people-driven consequences of doing that. Julia, thank you. Uh, now let's turn to inflation. Our next guest says this and supply shortages might be weighing on the sector now, but he expects a rebound in the second half of the year, the sector being semiconductors. We've got NVIDIA's uh, annual meeting tomorrow where we'll get more details uh, from them. And joining us now, Baird senior analyst Tristan Guerra. Uh, Tristan, good to have you. So you've got um, a buy rating on NVIDIA, but also on Intel. Huh. And... Uh, and a, uh, an outperform, I should say, and uh, also, I believe, a hold on AMD. That's kind of unusual. Explain. Yeah, well, first, um, we're constructed on the cycle. You know, you've mentioned 
uh, our views on about the second half, and we do expect a, a reacceleration in trends. But even so far this year, we're seeing you know very good uh, order trends ahead of uh, typical seasonality. Um, Intel, you know, the outperform rating is really based on the belief of a longer term turnaround story. It's it's a big company, so it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, we think the gap in performance between their chips and that of the competition is narrowing. Uh, they've actually more or less closed the gap in PCs. They have still a lot of work to do uh, to catch up with the AMD uh, in data center. Uh, but it's also a value name, and, and given the uh, the highly volatile environment, we think that this is a name that uh, is going to hold uh, better than average on a relative basis. And, and we think they have finally uh, the right management team in place with, uh, obviously, an exceptional CEO. Well, how should investors balance some of the criticism that Intel has faced over its foundry strategy against the demand that we're seeing for not only semiconductors in general, but regional locations of fabs, given geopolitical tensions. Does that uh, kind of affirm Intel's strategy? And how much doubt do you have about their ability to, to execute? Well, you hit on a, <clears throat> on a very good point, which I think is absolutely not in Intel's valuation right now, and which is obviously about the geopolitics. And, and, and I think, you know, being... 100% reliant on Taiwan and, and the TSMC supply chain five years ago was maybe a life concern in the back of uh, the mind of people. I think now, uh, given the geopolitical event, it's becoming much more of an urgency to have at least a plan to diversify manufacturing. Uh, and Intel really is going to be the only foundry based in the U.S. that's going to be able to provide leading node technology to companies. And I think the big difference relative to uh, Intel's initial push a few years ago mm -hmm. is that now they have a whole team in place. They've actually acquired a, uh, a smaller uh, foundry company that's going to give them a lot of know-how. And also they're developing a product with customers as opposed to just going to companies and say, hey, we can build a product for you. So I think it's this joint effort that's going to make really a big difference in terms of uh, the, the company uh, succeeding in that strategy and, and fail right. the fat. I mean, yeah, Tristan, Gelsinger has laid out some very bold ambitions, but they still have to execute on that. You sound more optimistic, but why not look at, say, Global Foundries that already is in the foundry business and could maybe expand it? Yeah, well, we have an outperform on the global foundries, and I think uh, notably the past few days, uh, stock action really reflect uh, the consciousness that investors are, you know, looking now at how ge geopolitical uh, matter and how U.S.-based production is really going to be an asset. So uh, Global Foundries is really focusing on the 12 nanometer um, and above type of geometry node, which, by the way, is about two-thirds of the entire production of semiconductor. So Intel is really complementary, uh, targeting leading nodes uh, for companies that need, you know, 10, 7 nanometer and 5 nanometer over time. And again, it's not going to be a overnight turnaround uh, but we do believe in Intel's capabilities. And I think it's also a matter of survival for Intel because I think that uh, the model of just selling 
their own ships for their own end market isn't going to be enough to subsidize the very heavy manufacturing investments that are required as we continue to move into a new geometry node. And it's this diversification in terms of customers that's going to benefit uh, Intel over time, in our view. Um, Tristan, uh, thank you. That's a, that's a great setup for the challenges for the industry in general ahead. Tristan Guerra from Baird. After the break, uh, headwinds for the ride-sharing industry, Uber and Lyft falling this morning. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. NASDAQ's trading positive this morning uh, was on pace for its first down day after four gains. We'll see if it can go for five here. In just a moment, Verizon's Hans Vestberg is with us, the company expanding its 5G service. But first, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour in southern China. Hundreds of rescuers have been responding to the crash of a China Eastern Airlines flight. The plane was a Boeing 737-800. 132 people were aboard, including nine crew members. No word yet on fatalities or injuries. Flight data indicates that the jet went into a deep dive and then quickly crashed into a mountain. NASA satellite data shows a massive fire at the crash scene. Warren Buffett's biggest deal since 2016, Berkshire Hathaway, has agreed to pay $11.6 billion in cash for Allegheny. The New York-based insurance company and its units will operate independently after the deal closes. Berkshire already has several insurance subsidiaries. And Cole says today that it has received multiple acquisition offers, but the department store chain says that the preliminary proposals are non-binding and don't have committed financing. CNBC has been told that Hudson's Bay, the Canadian retailer, is one of the potential bidders. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thanks so much, Rahel Solomon. As we mentioned, NASDAQ's uh, gone positive, up big last week, but can investors trust this bounce? For that, we're going to turn to Mike Santoli. Uh, Mike, as we see, uh, close to 44.75 here in VIX at 23. Yeah, so building a little bit, Carl, in last week's rally, when it, came, when it comes to the NASDAQ 100, Pretty dramatic, I would say, interruption of the downtrend without fully reversing it. I think that's why we are at a decision point here. Uh, you know, it's not as in good a shape as the S&P in the sense of how much 
of the correction losses have been regained. It's more like 35, 40 percent of the peak to trough decline has been recaptured. Also, you can't see it here, but the 200-day average like literally goes right there. We closed on it basically on Friday. Uh, so that's a natural point to pause, and it's another uh, test for the upside, as uh, we did see, of course, downside leadership from the big mega-cap tech groups. Take a look at some of the more speculative areas of the markets, the ones that peaked almost a, a year ago, if not more in some cases. They have also had very violent bounces. A lot of talk about how last week was uh, really dramatic in terms of the most depressed areas coming back. Well, that puts it in context. Last week's rally, you got a lot of these stocks up 20, 30 percent in IPOs, cloud, uh, online retail, all this stuff. But you see that it's really a challenge to try and, and reverse that. So I do think that, you know, arguably, if you're bullish on this move and you feel as if the market has told you it's put in a low for now, this is a kind of area with a lot of beta that still could go up a fair bit without even getting out of technically, uh, you know, a bear market. So I think that's where a lot of the, the work is being done as, uh, as people debate the fate of this bounce. Right. Uh, Mike, looking in the rearview mirror just to last week, what happens to the concerns last week about high yield? Does that, does that just dissipate with better equity action? Well, it actually firmed up. So I think that it sort of came off of the front burner in terms of things to be super concerned about. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily recouped all of those losses in high yield, uh, but it definitely did, uh, I, th I think, sort of improve enough uh, that you saw a loosening of financial conditions in general with stocks up, spreads tightening, VIX down. So, uh, you know, this could be a respite. Uh, it could just be the market kind of catching its breath here. But it seems as if we didn't get anything disorderly to the downside. And I think that's, you know, somewhat encouraging, even though you did have a couple of high yield uh, offerings pulled uh, because they didn't like market conditions, Affirm and others. So whether that's sort of a tell that the market was, you know, showing some discipline or it means it's going to be less generous from here on out, we don't know. Yeah, so Mike, last week when we saw this massive rally, it was in a lot of that unprofitable tech, even the meme stock names. And, you know, some say that that's hardly the foundation for a solid market. But I think I heard you speaking earlier today about seeing some of those higher quality names come back today. Right. So, you know, Dee, I agree that you don't only want to see the lower quality, really depressed stocks be the only thing that's uh, that's showing some relief. Uh, arguably, there's there's room to uh, have things like, you know, the apples and the big software, the big profitable software names. Adobe was one that was mentioned uh, that maybe they've just had a, enough of a valuation adjustment and that's all you needed for them. You didn't really need them to prove their business model. You just had to decide how much the market was willing to pay for that stream of earnings. Mike Santoli, thank you. Yeah. Up next, Verizon CEO Hans Vassberg is with us. Um, breaking some news. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Let's get over to our Julia Borston, who has some news this morning. Julia, over to you. Thanks, Deirdre. That's right. We're going to be joined now by Verizon CEO Hans Vesberg and Live Nation CEO Michael Rapino as they announce a 5G technology partnership 
And included in the partnership, which is pretty wide-ranging, Verizon will be outfitting venues across the U.S. with 5G ultra-wideband so concert goers can stream, share photos and videos, and download content at much faster speeds than 4G. And there is a new first access program that will make millions of tickets to Live Nation tours available to Verizon customers via the My Verizon app, also giving access to select streaming concerts. Joining us now to discuss that and more are Michael Rapino, CEO of Live Nation, and Hans Vesberg, CEO of Verizon. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning and breaking this news on Tech Check. Michael, let's start with you. What does this partnership really mean for Live Nation's bottom line? Well, first of all, thanks for joining uh, Hans and, and appreciate us having us on. Uh, Hans and I have been talking for over a year now about the ways we can use his great new technology, 5G, to finally uh, empower all of our venues and shows. As you know, when you go to a concert, it's 50-50, whether you can find a reception, whether you can post a picture, whether you can phone your, your friends. So the idea now that all of our venues will be lit up with this very efficient 5G, uh, it's just going to make it so much better for the fan, whether they just want to post a picture, uh, TikTok, or um, we can now start figuring out ways we can engage with that customer on site from upgrades to special merchandise to um, special access. Very interesting. Now, Hans, give us your perspective. In addition to just having this be part of the the broader rollout of 5G, what does this mean in terms of your relationship with Verizon customers? Why is it important to give them early access to either ticket sales or streaming? And, And do you think that'll help pull over customers from rival mobile carriers? Uh, first of all, I mean, thank you, Julia, for hosting us here. I mean, uh, Michael and I have talked for a long time, and we have this is actually an extension of our partnership. And, and clearly, what we see in, in these type of venues, the importance of connectivity in order to be part of the immersion experiences. And our strategy has been all the time to be on those places with, with a, a, a iconic sort of music or live sports. And Live Nation is, of course, the iconic brand here that we're working with in all the concerts and theaters they have across the country to see that they have a really good technology as a platform and that from that platform we will then start together innovate new fan experiences new ways to to actually consume this fantastic music or whatever it is in these concert uh, uh, places so that's one piece of it the other piece of course the trend that we see happening in the market that's of course going direct to the consumer either us to the first access where we will offer millions of tickets to the more than 100 million consumers we have as a first access, which is a great opportunity. We have already seen that because we already launched the first batch of it and uh, enormous uh, demand from our customers. And then finally, of course, working with Michael and his team when it comes to their direct-to-consumer Weeps, their uh, streaming service, which, uh, you know, we have worked with many others like Disney+, Plus, Discovery+, Plus, using our platforms and then innovate together with a partner like Live Nation. That's what we're doing here today. So it's, it's just a great way to see that uh, fans, our customers, and, and the people experiencing this getting an even better experience. Uh, Michael, great to have you. Good morning. It's, it's John. So I've got mixed feelings about smartphones at concerts. I mean, yes, they're great and everything, but have you quantified the um, financial value of streaming video and digital images on social media as marketing for live events? And how does 5G perhaps change the calculus if you have, does it make um, 
does it make live events easier to market, even if people maybe in the moment are paying less attention to what's in front of their face? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, we, we kind of look at our fan as the promoter. You know, the great part about the concert business is it's a, it's a Kodak moment. Everyone has to post that moment when they're there. It's a special moment in their history. So you are right. If you're on the, the first Harry Styles concert in New York and 20,000 people are posting and reposting, and I've still got 70, 80 shows to sell throughout the world, that momentum every night of, of Instagram, social, TikTok, all the ways those fans are help spreading the word is incredible, valuable marketing to us. We, we've been talking about this for years on how the customer really takes the show to the consumer for us. They are our best word of mouth advertising. And that has provided us billions of impressions around our shows and our experiences, our festivals. This just highlights it and unlocks it mm-hmm. to a full level now. Hey, Michael, it's Deirdre. In that vein, I wonder, though, who owns the customer? Earlier this year, you said that live streaming is a compliment and promotion to the core concert. I think that's what you're saying now. But I wonder, is big tech looking at it the other way around? And could that potentially be a threat to your business? I mean, on a virtual platform, artists are able to reach millions of more viewers. They're able able to interact in a different way. So how urgent is it for you to sort of build up these tech and virtual tools to own the customer? Yeah, I I want to define, though, the physical event is the magic, right? The two hours that you go live down to MSG to watch that show, that's the non-duplicatable part. So that's the part we've seen over, obviously, through COVID and now roaring back. That's the part you can't get online. You can't get through your TikTok video. You got to be live to make it happen. So that's our magic sauce, the two hours. Now, any ways that we can take that two hours and help market it, enhance it, complement it. We think that's great for our business and our fans and for the artists. So we think these extensions, marketing, adding value to the show are great extensions. The two hours, though, still is the money shot uh, that has to happen live to get the goosebumps. Now, when you talk about extensions, I think it's notable that in this press release that just went out, you also talk about augmented reality features and also NFTs, NFTs, Hans, that you are going to give the opportunity for Verizon customers to acquire. Tell us how this is going to work or how this could fit into a broader strategy with NFTs. No, the the broader strategy is clear. First of all, I just want to echo what uh, Michael is saying. Remember that the the uplink on 5G, when you send up data, when you send to TikTok, etc., the limitation is basically on any technology except 5G. That's why we saw at the Super Bowl that people can send up everything if they are on 5G. And that's what we're going to do in 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 the venues as well. And we need to understand that this youth, this fan base, they want to do different things at the same time, using the phones, using, looking the visuals, but nothing will replace a real concert or a, a real live sports event. That, that is really the, the cream of the premium when it comes to being live. But you can replicate it and be ambassadors for it, and that's what we will create. On top of that, then, of course, you can start creating immersive experiences, which we did together with uh, Michael and his team during the halftime show at Super Bowl, where you basically have 8K cameras behind the, uh, the whole event in the halftime at Super Bowl, and you can access that. You can be wherever around these players uh, or these uh, 
uh, uh, wrappers, and that's what you can do. And then you can create NTFs on that. You can do a lot of things. So this platform that we are putting in, that is really where you st- start doing innovation for the fans' experience. And there are multiple things you can do. And that's also when NTFs comes in in the whole picture for us. So I think we have built the Verizon Intelligent Edge Network and our Ultra Network for Metaverse, even though we didn't know a Metaverse was actually existing when we started with the network. Yeah, yeah, certainly an advantage to have that kind of broadband. I want to take a step back from the news of the day and just look at what's going on more broadly in the economy right now. Obviously, there's inflation, there's economic uncertainty, uh, certainly, which which has a bigger impact in terms of Live Nation, what's going on in Europe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I'm wondering if, if both of you, and I'm going to start with you, Michael, can give us a sense of what these different factors are doing to your business outlook. Michael, I know uh, when in February you gave a very bullish outlook for 2022, too. It was before the uh, the invasion of Ukraine and also before some of these inflation indicators spiked. What are you seeing right now? Are you any less optimistic than you were a month ago? Um, well, first of all, thank you. And obviously what's happening in, in Russia, Ukraine is horrible. And we're doing everything we can to support and, um, and, and see how this plays out. We are, uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of shows in that area. So that, that hasn't really affected our business Europe seems to be business as usual right now for the summer. So we haven't seen any disruption in our core business uh, around the world in terms of touring. Um, we, we don't see the inflation effect in us yet. You know, I think uh, we've talked about in February, we had such a, a 24-month shutdown that the pent-up demand is so big right now for the customers this summer. We're still tracking 30% plus up year over year. We're seeing consumers buying tickets on, on sale this weekend. We had sold out festivals this weekend. So I do believe that the pent-up demand over the last two years is going to power through any short-term inflation issues. Tickets seem to be flying out of the door, both from the front um, seat to the back. So we're looking still for a record 22 uh, across the globe. And Hans, I, I would pose a similar question to you. Uh, what's your sense of the impact of inflation on consumer spending and, and the kind of activity you're seeing among your Verizon customers? As a, first of all, I, mean, I can only agree with Michael. It's horrible what we're seeing right now in Ukraine and all of that. And uh, we decided to waive any calls and texts to, to Ukraine for all our customers in order to see that they can communicate. Uh, and of course, we have a consumer base business only in the U.S. And if you look at that, uh, there, there's so far no impact from what's happening in in Europe on that consumer base. Of course, we have the inflation. But one thing that has happened in the last two years is that the mobility broadband and cloud services is essential infrastructure, the essential services for each and everyone in this country. So, of course, when we now, for example, launched our fixed wireless access as a broadband solution, we, we have seen a great uh, uh, demand for that. Uh, our mobility service continue to be very strong. So I think that this is essential today to operate your business in this hybrid world because that's where we're going to live, uh, where people want to work from home sometimes or being on the road and seeing that technology works. So actually, we see a good demand for our business, uh, that pooled with, of course, uh, the, all the new offerings. And recently this morning, I have to say that we also launched that we are pulling in more spectrum earlier. We are actually clearing the spectrum uh, one year ahead, more spectrum, so that we're going to launch some 30 more markets this year, uh, which is already very vast on our ultra, mm-hmm. uh, 5G ultra wideband network. So, uh, no, we, we continue to pull through. Uh, we're going to follow what's going to happen, of course. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you so much for the business updates from you both and also for breaking the news of your partnership here on Tech Tech. Hans Vestberg, Michael Rapino, thank you both so much for joining us. And John, I'm going to send it back over to you. Julia, thanks. Thank now, as you head to break, check out Tesla. Jeffrey is slashing its price target from 1400 to 1250 That's still more than 25% upside from here. Concerned about valuations taking a hit from the current macro environment and geopolitical tensions? We're back in a moment. For a gut check on the ride-sharing companies, Uber and Lyft, RBC cutting price targets and saying driver supply has worsened for both companies. Take a look at Uber. RBC worried about equalizing market share and decreasing margin upside potential. They are maintaining their outperform rating, but the price target falls from 65 to 50. That's just a few bucks above the IPO price. As for Lyft, still rated outperform, but a much shallower cut from 53 to $50 again below the IPO price. Concerns over rising driver incentive expenses is fueling this call. Shares are down sharply to start the morning, more than 4%. We will be right back. Welcome back. Amazon notching yet another tactical victory on the legal and regulatory front. On Friday, won a dismissal of an antitrust lawsuit from the Washington, D.C. Attorney General. The suit said Amazon made products more expensive for consumers by demanding that sellers offer their lowest prices on Amazon. The AG's office considering an appeal. This comes on the heels of Amazon's MGM acquisition being approved, sort of by default, that deal closing last week. Overseas, a different story. Europe's Digital Markets Act is expected to be finalized as soon as this week. And that law would give regulators broad investigative and punitive powers, according to the Financial Times. Big tech firms, including Amazon, already preparing for the worst, including the creation of a new compliance unit. D. Yeah, John, that headline up on the screen right now says it all. Europe has proven to be the regulators with teeth when it comes to big tech. We're going to head to a break, but don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. That's our one more thing today. The messaging app Telegram has been banned in Brazil. The country's Supreme Court ordered Apple and Google to block the app over accusation of misinformation and not complying with court orders. The CEO says it hasn't been complying because Brazil's Supreme Court has been sending those orders to the wrong corporate email address. Telegram says it's been inundated with takedown requests in the last few weeks as it became one of the primary ways people within Ukraine communicated, including President Zelensky. Uh, We sometimes... We're not perfect, John, but a lot of times we take for granted the efficiency of rule of law in this country. That's for sure. That is for sure. And it looks like the ban was lifted after that email uh, misunderstanding got cleared up, uh, according to this report in The New York Times. D, uh, we, we talk about all these highfalutin <laughs> things like finance and, you know, money moving without friction. Yeah. Messages still Emails. need to move without friction. I, I just yeah, want to know, Carl, were there receipts? I need to see the evidence that this was sent to the wrong email address. You can doctor these things these days. Yep. That's difficult, <laughs> difficult to verify a lot of stuff that's online. Guys, interesting week. Uh, Powell has been moved to 1230. We're going to have our eyes peeled for comments, whether or not he takes some uh, questions and adds additional color to his comments from last week. And of course, Nike tonight as earnings season continues to trickle along for the time being. Dow's down 166. Let's get to the judge. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.